0: Welcome, welcome. From, Alpha from Alpha to Omega to Omega.
1: Hello, and welcome to the 45th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 1st of February 2014, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's episode is a little late because my partner, the lovely Precious, has been in the acute medical unit in Woolwich Hospital for the last week with an as-yet-undiagnosed high fever. Little Sonny and myself, very much looking forward to having you home Precious. Get well soon. This week is sponsored by the first-time donor, Marcus B., the repeat donor, Michael T, and the new monthly subscriber Amir H. Thanks very much everybody for your very generous support of the show. You too can join in the festivities by clicking on that there donate button on the podcast website. This week our guest is Matthias Fernengel. Matthias is an Associate Professor of Economics at Bucknell University and a former senior manager of economic research at the Central Bank of Argentina. He blogs regularly at his site Naked Keynesianism, as well as for Triple Crisis, and is the co-editor of the Review of Keynesian Economics. We discuss a paper he recently co-authored with David Fields on the hegemonic role of the dollar in the global economy. We talk of the advantages of being the world's reserve currency, the Bretton Woods Agreement, Nixon closing the gold window, the Triffin dilemma, threats to the dominance of the dollar in world trade, and the irrelevance of gold in today's financial system. So, Matthias, I read your recent paper, Hegemonic Currencies During the Crisis. The dollar versus the euro in a cartelist
0: perspective.
1: What is the general overall thesis of this paper?
0: Well, there has been for a while now, at least since the 1960s, and the so-called discussion of the Triffin Dilemma, notions that the dollar was close to losing its hegemonic position in the world economy. Those became particularly important in the early 70s when Nixon closed the gold window And the dollar started to fluctuate. And particularly after the euro, you know, the notion that the euro was going to take over became more and more important. And one of the interesting things about the crisis is that, uh, and I'm not even saying, you know, closer to us now. So, So 2011, when the euro crisis sort of became more acute. But in September 2008, at the height of the financial crisis in the US, when Lehman went down. Actual traders you know, in international financial markets, they run towards the dollar. So you have a financial crisis in Wall Street, and what financial markets look for in terms of safety is dollars. That sort of very strikingly shows the relevance of the dollar as the key currency, how the actual crisis in the US, instead of leading to the collapse of the dollar and a run of the dollar, leads to a consolidation, if you want, of the hegemonic position of the dollar in international markets. Before we
1: get any further into it, I suppose we need to start off trying to understand what is a hegemonic currency?
0: The term comes actually from a discussion in political science, and it was uh, Kindleberger and Kilhain that sort of came up with these theories of uh, hegemonic currencies. But but I would suggest that there is a basis, if you want, uh, previously in, you know, what used to be called political economy, which is sort of firmer grounds for understanding what a hegemonic currency would be. And, and it might be a good idea to clarify it, I suppose. A hegemonic currency is a currency that is internationally, you know, used as a currency. But then the important thing to understand is what it means to be, you know, an international currency. Traditionally, people think of currency as something that facilitates uh, exchanges or reduces transaction costs as something that it's useful and whatnot. That's the general uh, discussion in economics of what uh, currencies are. The idea of hegemonic currency connects it with this sort of political power connection of that there is a hegemon, somebody that you know has power to not necessarily force, but to move people in certain directions. I suppose that the term comes from, you know, Gramsci's hegemonic power. But the important notion is that you can force contracts to be signed internationally in a particular currency. Keynes used to say that the currency, you know, it, it's about who decides what's the dictionary, what's the language you use. So it's the country that decides that certain things are to be paid in a particular currency. And for the international transactions, the, the key thing is that most relevant international commodities are priced in a particular unit of account. So oil and natural gas and all the energy commodities and practically all commodities are actually priced in dollars. You know, I think the exception is, you know, international market. Somebody told me once that it's tea, that it's still done in, in pounds uh, because you know, the consumption is huge in, and- in England and, you know, or traditionally was. And so that's the only commodity that still sort of, uh, but, you know, for the most part, that's the important thing. And the notion here is that, you know, it's, it's really the central thing about currencies is not so much, you know, that the sort of facilitation of transactions, but the fact that being the unit of account, the thing that determines which unit the contracts are signed and whatnot is what allows for capitalist calculation. So you can, you, you want to accumulate in a particular unit of account. And so that, that's what's central. So people globally, corporations globally, want to accumulate in dollars. And that's what gives uh, the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. government uh, you know, so much power.
1: So who is it that decides what the
0: reserve currency will be in, in practice? That's a good question. Historically, you know, we have uh, in modern times not that many key currencies. So, so you can think of, you know, if you go back to Middle Ages and the transition towards capitalism, the currencies uh, that were central were well, the ducat uh, from Venice, then you know, have the Dutch guilder, then the British pound, and then the dollar. So that's it. Interestingly enough, uh, the Spanish and Portuguese empires that had a a lot of power during a while there in the 15th, 16th century, never quite had the key currency. They always depended on bankers that were outside of uh, the Iberian Peninsula. And so, you know, one way of thinking of it is historically. So what's behind those several currencies that were central and, and so who, quote unquote, decides? And there are several factors. Obviously, all of those countries or city-states, in the case of Venice, dominated international trade. Their bankers were central in the facilitation of international trade, and they could enforce and determine in which unit of account contracts would be signed, and debts repaid. It is associated to military power and military dominance of international trade routes. So there is something to, uh, Machiavelli had some sort of phrase to the fact that behind every key currency, there is a strong army. So there is a, an element of power. So that's why the, the paper has this notion of cartelist approach, the notion of, you know, money is not what money does. It's, it's uh, something that's designated. It's, you know, it's what is, and it's designated by a strong state. And so cartel here refers to the power of the state.
1: The current reserve currency is the dollar. When when did the dollar come to
0: prominence? So the transition is sort of a slow one, I suppose. Clearly, by the 20s, 30s, there is sort of a transition in, in the works. Perhaps even earlier, you could say that to some extent, the Federal Reserve was created in, in 1913 because New York wanted to have more of an international role in financial markets. And so it's a response of Wall Street to the growing relevance of American corporations you know, globally. So it's not surprising that it comes also with the incipient sort of uh, um, American imperialism. First in, in Latin America, you know, Cuba, Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a you know, big stick. But clearly after the Second World War, so so with the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, that's sedimented and made amply clear that that's uh, the key currency in international markets. So by '44, when we enter a dollar gold exchange standard standard, the dollar has already become the the key currency.
1: Can you describe this Bretton Woods system, how it was designed and and why it was
0: designed the way it was? Bretton Woods is, in many respects, a a response to the interwar crisis, which involves the Great Depression. And I think one of the best books uh, about that, which is not often given the the relevance it deserves by Kindler Berger, it's called The The World in Depression from 1973, actually the whole notion is that the great depression is the result of a crisis of hegemony so england after the first world war and after england became basically indebted to the us in dollars in a foreign currency has lost the ability to manage international financial system and the gold standard so the gold standard eventually collapses england you know leaves the gold standard in september 1931 the us will devalued by april 33 and the instability and of the international financial system uh, which created you know s- several problems in- and contributed to the depression was seen as something problematic, and at the same time, there was sort of a, these two lines of thought: whether the reconstruction in Europe should be supported, or once the war was won, they should be punitive with Germany, and, and so there, there was sort of a sense that the previous post-war arrangement, the Versailles Treaty of 1919, was a sort of a failure. So, so Bretton Woods should be, I think, seen in in light of that sort of big crisis, and together with the Marshall Plan and the Cold War as a way of reorganizing the world. In in a more sustainable basis. So so basically there were two plans. One was the American plan by Harry Dexter White, the Under Secretary of the Treasury, and the other was the British plan designed by Keynes. Keynes' plan was certainly better. It uh, had this notion of a global currency, was going to be called banker. But, you know, th- there was no doubt that the British plan had no chances whatsoever of being implemented. So so the Americans could impose whatever they wanted, and, and they did. The plan is what created the IMF and the World Bank. It was also supposed to create a trade organization, which uh, was never quite created until the WTO in 1995. And was basically two things that made uh, Bretton Woods. The most well-known is that the exchange rates were fixed to the dollar and of all currencies, and then uh, the dollar was fixed to gold. But I think the most important one was rather than, than the fixed exchange rates, the fact that countries were allowed to use capital controls. So the whole idea of Bretton Woods which survived, you know, was in Keynes' plan, but survived in the American plan, was the notion that you will not allow flows of capital to go in and out of countries and then force this domestic central banks to hike rates of interest in order to avoid capital flies and hence throw the economy because of international volatility of capital flows into recessions. So that the fundamental policy goal was domestic full employment. And so, so that was the notion behind Bretton Woods. Of course, it worked to great extent because of the Soviet menace and the Cold War and the fact that the U.S. was willing to put a huge amount of money behind uh, the Marshall Plan uh, in order to avoid the expansion of communism globally.
1: So these capital controls, they in essence worked something like in an oil tanker, how you would divide up parts of oil so it wouldn't slosh around and cause the oil tanker essentially to tip over in a big wave.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Obviously, there were flows of capital, but they were sort of controlled. So you have to come up and explain why you're doing this, that and the other. So it was heavily regulated. But the movements towards the regulation start early on. You know, Wall Street was not particularly happy. And and certainly this city in London also was not particularly happy. And so uh, by the 50s, you have already something called the euro market, uh, which the euro market at that point had nothing to do. You know, people might think these days it's something related to the euro, but it was a market lending in dollars at the city of London. So it had the advantage of not being regulated by the US because it was outside of the US borders and not being regulated by the Bank of England because it was in dollars, not in pounds. And so it was sort of an unregulated funds. That's the sort of the seeds, if you want, of uh, the financial deregulation that really starts in, in earnest uh, strongly after the 70s and, and then even more so after the 80s.
1: So why did they choose to
0: peg the dollar to gold? Keynes referred to a, the gold standard as an old relic. So so you're right, it's a bit surprising that by 44 they still decide to, to tie it to gold. I would even suggest that the classic gold standard, the 1870 to 1914 sort of period in which pound is tied to gold and you know, and everything revolves around gold, supposedly, it's not really a gold standard per se, it's more of like pound standard. Flows of gold were never that particularly big. So the question is why in 1944 40, they still decide to tie the dollar to gold. And, you know, I think... There is a political sort of issue, you know, that they were trying to uh, make clear that to some extent the U.S. is not going to use the power of, of the purse, if you want. In many respects, part of what we say in that paper with David Fields, most people think at the end of Bretton Woods in 1973, when by that time currencies are flexible, capital controls start to be dismantled, the dollar is already linked from gold as the collapse of the dollar hegemony, and would I suggest that exactly what you're asking. Why would they tie it to gold if after '73 the dollar has actually more flexibility? So this flexible dollar standard that we have right now is a world in which the dollar does not depend and it's not tied to gold. The degree of flexibility of American policy is so much larger than it was before. And actually provide something that we never had before. Traditionally, when you look at uh, national governments, national governments always are debtors. They carry debt. And the whole idea that you're printing money, money is tied to the idea of debt. Traditionally, a country like uh, you know UK or if you go back to, to the, all the other countries that you know, had hegemonic currencies, they tended to have surpluses. And when they fell into deficits, they have a problem because they, they have to you know, provide the key currency globally and whatnot. And they're tied to gold. And so they're tied to some sort of metallic arrangement that that provides uh, a limit. And that was the notion of the Triffin Dilemma, by the way, so that the U.S. also had that sort of thing. So once the fiction of gold is eliminated, the U.S. has become globally the same thing that, you know, national governments are. It's a global debtor. When people say, oh, the U.S. owes this huge amount to the Chinese. Yeah, they give the Chinese a little piece of paper, you know, that says I owe you another piece of paper, you know, a green piece of paper that I also control. So it's sort of a peculiar kind of debt. So the Chinese are willing to hold pieces of paper that promise them to give them other pieces of paper, both of which are produced by the U.S. government. It's a fantastic sort of... a uh, good deal. It's a good deal, exactly. So I, you know, I, I wish, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Argentina. I wish people accepted IOU. Argentina, you know that would be fantastic. So that means that you can consume huge amounts of goods and services from other countries, and you repay in, in your own currency. So that's the power of being a hegemon. After seventy-three, after the collapse of Bretton Woods, the U.S. hegemonic power has actually increased, not decreased. That—that's the I think the thrust of of the argument in that paper.
1: Just to describe how tying a currency to gold limits a government. This is because that if you have a surplus of imports over exports that your pounds are ending up abroad and at some stage these people can cash in their pounds and they can drain the gold out of the country. Is that the idea for tying them to gold? Exactly.
0: So the notion, yeah, you know, traditionally people tend to think that the end of Bretton Woods was to some extent associated to the demand in, to be paid in, in gold. And so that, that from the late 60s onwards puts pressure on the dollar because, you know, they are printing too much dollars and, you know, have trade deficits. And so these dollars, they're in the hands of, you know, the French, the German, and whatnot. They want now gold. And so the U.S. doesn't have enough gold to pay everybody. And so they're forced to the link from gold. So the U.S. looks very much like Greece in that story or Argentina, a country that it's close to default. So they, in order to avoid default, they said, oh, I don't forget about gold and you have dollars. The, The thing is that, as I said, everything is priced in dollars and people do want the products and the technologies from the U.S. But the most important thing I should say is that it's because, you know, all contracts are denominated in dollars. It's free of risk. You see, if you have a bond denominated in dollars, you know exactly how much it's worth in dollars. You know There's no risk that it will devalue or whatnot. So it's zero risk. You buy a government bond, treasury bond, even if it pays very low interest rate, which it does at this point, you have guaranteed that it will not lose value in dollars. So that aspect of being free of risk means that, you know, the U.S. has virtual control on the direction of capital flows. So, by the late 70s, when Paul Volcker decided that uh, he wanted to stop inflation in the U.S. and he hiked interest rates, all flows of capital came to the U.S. So everybody wanted to buy treasury bonds, and and that's what, by the way, broke half of the world. That that crisis and all of that was caused by that. But you know, it's even more interesting. The example I said at the beginning. It's not even when when the U.S. hikes the rate of interest. At at some point, you're in the middle of a crisis like 2008. People rush to safety, meaning you know treasury bonds, even in the middle of a crisis in the u s because it's the only you know sort of global asset you know you know if you hold dollars, you know exactly how much you can buy say of you know oil. Which, you know, makes the world work, you know. So that's the sort of thing that, you know, it's central about all of this. You know, it it comes with a price tag. So so the U.S. does have, you know, military bases all around the world that this is associated to, you know, the necessity of maintaining this hegemonic currency. I I think that it's interesting to think it, it used to be, you know, Eisenhower idea of the military industrial complex. And Bhagwati, which is sort of a strange person to come up with, with the term, uh, Jagdish Bhagwati is this Indian economist that has been for a long time in Colombia, and it's a big defender of globalization and free markets and all of those things. But he came back in the late 90s during you know, the Asian and Russian crisis with the notion of an IMF treasury complex. And I think it's better as a description of the sort of hegemonic power of the US than, than the military industrial complex. They go hand in hand in reality. But the, you know, the idea of a, a treasury IMF, IMF treasury complex uh, puts money at the center of it. And, and I think that that's probably the, the correct way. I, I should say it's probably it's Wall Street IMF treasury complex. One of the beautiful things about international financial markets is they they actually continue to work during the middle of the worst crisis and and wars. So during the Second World War, the BIS worked perfectly and you had transfers of gold uh, done by the Germans and and the British and all of those, a perfectly safe sort of way with the BIS. So financial markets didn't completely close down during the Second World War, which is an amazing thing, yeah how bankers manage to maintain relations even in the middle of uh, some of the fiercest and ugliest of wars. Very well, my boy. Give me the money.
1: No, I won't. I wanted to feed the birds. Banks? Yes, sir.
0: Now, Michael, when
1: you deposit tuppence... ...in a bank account... Go on! ...soon you'll see... Tell them more! ...that it blooms into credit of a generous amount... ...semi-annually... ...and you'll achieve that that sense
0: sense of stature... ...as your influence expands... ...to the high financial strata...
1: That credit now, come on. Getting back to the reason for Nixon closing the gold window, I, I've heard it said, I think by maybe Dr. Michael Hudson, that the entire imbalance in the trade deficit of the US at the time was caused by spending on the escalating war in Vietnam.
0: Yeah, Vietnam was part of the story. I mean, you you can have several different stories of the 60s and, you know, why you have lots of spending going on. Certainly, you know, you had uh, also the war on poverty, the expansion of Medicare, Medicaid. The U.S. only at that point sort of completed the welfare system that in Europe was sort of done before. You know, also, despite, you know, the whole notion of uh, free society and democracy, and at that point included African Americans and, and whatnot. And so, so all of those things also implied uh, an expansion in fiscal policy. And even earlier, you know, so Kennedy... Had this bunch of Keynesian economists, and they did the tax cut, uh, which was passed out pretty with Lyndon Johnson. So, so you have several things that were going on for expansionist policy. But yeah, you know, the notion that it was excessive fiscal expansion that caused or forced U.S. to go out of the gold standard seems to me. An inappropriate sort of assumption and that's typically in fact of all discussions of external crisis so so let's for a second forget the u s and 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 then i'll go back but think of Argentina in the nineties Argentina was tied one dollar one peso from nineteen ninety one until two thousand and one and Traditionally, you know, what you hear is, oh, Argentina had, you know, all of this spending, fiscal spending, and so it was spending too much because it was spending too much, was importing too much, had trade deficits, and so it's the fiscal expansion that leads to current account deficit, which leads to the necessity of devaluing eventually. Yeah, you know, they cannot pay and they default or not. Actually, when you look at the accounts, Argentina, you know, had done an incredible, you know, incredible fiscal adjustment, and is the external crisis, you know, that's first pushed by the Mexican crisis, then the Asian crisis, then the Russian crisis, then the Brazilian crisis, and the contagion that comes from all of those crises that actually make it difficult to finance the Argentinian current account deficits. Fiscal policy wasn't the cause. Fiscal policy was a result, you know, the, the fiscal deficits. Why? Because an economy that's in recession loses revenue. But that's not that particularly important because, you know, remember, Argentina has to pay in dollars for these imports. And the fiscal balances are in in local money. So that's not relevant. So the important thing is that Argentina didn't export. So it's the exports that are sort of problematic and the cause of the problem. And so the fiscal story is not what really caused it. It's not too much spending. For example, Spain. Spain had surpluses. Spain, you know, had low levels of public debt. And still had a brutal crisis. You know, Spain now has almost, whatever it is, 28%, 27% of unemployment. And it was the current account. So the fact that they don't control their own currency, which is a huge mistake. You know, your national state, you without a currency, it's a strange sort of animal. Because they don't have a currency and they have to pay in this currency that they don't control... The only way you can acquire that particular external currency, in this case of Spain, the euro, is by exporting. If you don't export enough, then you're in trouble. So it's the current account that is the problem. The US had no particular problem because at the end of the day, yeah, yeah, it's tied to gold, but you know, once you delinked from gold, it's the dollar that was in the contracts. It's the dollars, not gold. So the price of gold went to the stratosphere. So what? You know, it's like bitcoins. It's not a relevant unit of account. So you know we price barrels of oil in, in dollars. The contracts to repay you know, loans are in dollars. Most of the global transactions, so if you look at the numbers in our paper, whatever it was, you know, it's close to 90% of all bilateral transactions have on one side dollars. So if you know, Mexicans are transacting with the Chinese, they're transacting in dollars. So that's what at the end of the day mattered. So the U.S. fiscal balances were not that important and didn't cause a particular crisis in the late 70s. It was a sort of a created crisis, if you want, but I, I wouldn't even take it too seriously. The, the, the person that actually was the Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs during the, the early 70s when the US, the link from gold, was Paul Volcker. It's important to understand that Volcker is the same guy that it's the link in gold from the dollar. And then by 78, when he's appointed by Carter, to be the the chairman of the Fed, he hikes the rate of interest and all oh, flows of capital come to the dollar and the dollar appreciates a lot. So everybody thought, oh, the dollar is going to depreciate brutally. And then, you know, what, what actually has happened is that the dollar has, with a mild trend, negative trend, has fluctuated with cycles of appreciation and depreciation, but its international position has not been affected at all. When Nixon
1: or Volcker took the dollar off its peg to gold, All these central banks around the world who had dollars and thought they were good for gold suddenly had paper instead of maybe a promise for gold. Was there any risk, did they think, at the time that these central banks might sell the dollars into the market to try and get their hands on perhaps gold or to spread their holdings across a number of
0: currencies? Sure, fair enough. Th- those things are always floated and it's still today, you know, people say, oh, the, the Chinese were going to you know, dump the dollars. But the question is, they're going to dump it for what? You know, First of all, other currencies are not particularly enticing. So there was nothing back in the 70s, nor is anything right now that would sort of provide the same sort of security than dollars. And then you say something like gold or bitcoins and and... And the point of all of those is that they, again, they don't provide the security that the dollar provides because at the end of the day, international contracts, international commodities are all priced in dollars. So, you know, the price of gold can go up or the price of gold can go down. The price of uh, oil in dollars remains the price of oil in dollars. If I had to say what's the most dangerous thing, and I don't foresee it as a danger for right now, for the position of the dollar globally it's not so much, you know, this or that country. So a lot of people think that the yuan, you know, that the Chinese will become central. The yuan or remember first we should notice, is not even a, a conversible currency. So so they have lots of restrictions of buying and selling the currency in the international markets, which would pose a problem if you wanted to do it. A currency doesn't just have to provide uh, security to anchor financial market, an asset with, you know, zero risk. So that, you know, that if you have a U.S. treasury bond, it's worth you know what it says in dollars but a global hegemon has to provide global demand so it has to provide global expansion for the economy that's something that certainly the uk did or netherlands before you know always in smaller proportion but but certainly did you can think of the first globalization, 1870s to 1914, with the British capital going abroad and allowing for all of this railroads and commodity specializations, so on and so forth, and, you know, a, a big burst of growth. And the U.S. did that to a great extent during the post-World War II period, you know, with Marshall Plan and the Alliance of Progress, and not always nicely, but, you know, lots of the geopolitics of that is ugly and nasty, but certainly global expansion. And it seems that you know since 2008 that the US elites are unwilling to promote at the national level, a significant expansion of the economy to provide again for full employment and whatnot. And so that the global economy is suffering also because of that. Certainly Europe is suffering because of that. And increasingly it's developing countries, China, and the expansion of you know in, in peripheral countries that has allowed for the expansion of the global economy. So so there is a danger in the U.S. If, in the sense that if the U.S. economy is not expanding and not providing that source of demand globally, that more you know central banks, more countries might uh, want to demand yuans. And certainly, uh, the Chinese are slowly providing more credit in, in their own currency and. It's still marginal, I should say. I I don't remember now the number precisely from the paper, but I think it's uh, 6% of all transactions, all the ones. So it's a big expansion from what it was, whatever it was, 3% 10 years ago, but still tiny.
1: So for the US to help expand global trade, they in effect have to run large fiscal deficits. Is that the idea?
0: Large fiscal deficits and large trade deficits, current account deficits. So I'm suggesting the opposite of what most people sort of suggest. uh, Global imbalances are too small. We need more global imbalances. Traditionally, that's what domestic governments do. So the U.S. government keeps significant amounts of of debt. At some point in the 2000s, I I want to say, in the election of 2000, there was this discussion of what we should do with the surpluses. And I think it was Al Gore that said we should pay down all the debt. Bush, of course, says we should cut taxes. And I remember at that point, Robert Solow wrote, wrote something to the fact that, look, you don't want to pay down debt. Uh, paying down debt is sort of a bad idea because it eliminates the risk-free asset that makes financial markets sort of secure. So you want certain amount of public debt. And in effect, uh, the previous time that the U.S. had paid all that, uh, which uh, was with Andrew Jackson, uh, that basically threw the U.S. economy into a significant recession. You know, you you eliminate uh, the security in financial markets. uh, That's a bad idea. So the U.S. on a national level, and that's true for all governments, they carry significant amounts of debt. That doesn't mean that they always run deficits. But, you know, for the most part, if you accumulated a debt, which is a stock of money you owe, is because uh, the balances over a series of periods uh, of your flows of income and revenue were negative. So that means that uh, you have run deficits. And that's OK. It's, it's more than OK. It's necessary. I, I tell always my students, you know, think of this. It's not a question of, of whether you have deficits and debt. So deficits and debt are not necessarily bad. I don't know what there is this sort of notion in the common sense that deficits and debt are necessarily bad. So it all depends on what you use it for. So a uh, deficit and the accumulation of that that goes into something futile that doesn't produce any sort of advantage is certainly dangerous. But a deficit that provides for higher income and growth is necessarily a good thing. So spending money on things that promote economic growth, say now in the U.S., unemployment insurance you know, it gives people the possibility to continue to survive and, and buy food. It's a good thing providing you know money for building infrastructure, to, for schools, for education, for kids. All of those things tend to be the kind of good spending that leads to growth, and hence it generates revenue in the future. So it's not particularly problematic. And the U.S. is the only country that has that sort of a role internationally. So the U.S. must provide global deficits. It's the only international currency, or, or the key one, I should, I should say, Euros are, to some extent, too, and the yen. But, you know, it's the key currency that allows for that sort of expansion of useful spending. Of course, not all is useful. I mean, lots of money goes into, you know, idiotic things. And the suggestion that the deficits have to be bigger doesn't mean that I'm condoning all kinds of spending. But, you know, it it certainly means that they have to be bigger. And then you have to have a different discussion as well. How do we spend the money and what are the reasonable things to do with money and so on and so forth? But those are two different discussions. (laughs) you <laughs>
1: we think about the U.S. fiscal deficit, in some sense, it allows people to get their hands on treasury bonds, a secure asset. It allows, in essence, perhaps the U.S. government to, you know, inverted commas, spend more than they have. I know there's no actual limit because they can print the dollar, but they spend more than they have because internationally people want to get their hands and use these treasury bonds in dollars. In effect, it is a way for the U.S. of giving the world dollars and getting goods for essentially nothing.
0: Exactly. But, you know, here's the thing, you know, and it's important so that people don't don't get the wrong impression. So most people get frightened when they say this. Oh, well, there's no limit. They can spend whatever they want and, and send it. Oh, there are no consequences. Of course, there might be consequences. So what would be the consequences if, let's say, the U.S. increases you know, and spends a lot of money and lives beyond its means, whatever that means? And print uh, too much money, which in fact they they have done quite a bit of that over the last few years. Although they're not spending the money, the mo- money is in the vaults of banks. One risk could be, you know, the traditional idea is that you have. A lot of printing of money and not enough goods and services and would lead to inflation. So first of all, that's predicated on the notion that somehow the, the economy is close to full capacity, which is far from the truth at this point. So the global economy is well below capacity. The U.S. is well below capacity. So what would happen is if you have more expansion and whatnot, you'll have more demand and more production and more employment and certainly not more inflation. However... In many cases, even before, you know, not in the case of the U.S., in many cases, say that a country like Argentina tries to do something like that, and I use Argentina as, you know, the typical non-hegemonic country. Uh, We have defaulted, I suppose, five, six times, so it's it's a habit at this point. A bad habit. Yeah, (laughs) so so the point is, uh, you know, People in Argentina may decide, you know, you're printing money, uh, you're spending, and they may say, oh, you know what, the value of the peso will fall, so I'm going to buy dollars. So you actually do get inflation, but not because of the reasons people traditionally think, oh, they're printing too much money, there are not enough goods and services uh, to be provided, the economy is at full employment, and then you have inflation. No, is that even with the economy being well below full employment, just to give you an example, Argentina, probably unemployment rate at this point is something like 7%, down from 22% at the height of the crisis. So, and this is in a country that has lots of disguised unemployment, people that are you know in low productivity jobs and, and can certainly get a, a formal job paying higher wages. So it's good in comparison to what it was before, but not you know certainly hanky dory and all perfect. And people may decide to go and buy dollars. And when they buy dollars, they actually the peso depreciates, and when it depreciates means that all imported goods are become more expensive, and so you do have inflation, but inflation is not because the economy is at full employment and the printing of money causes it it's because people are afraid of the depreciation and they actually do currency substitution in the u s that's very unlikely because you know you're printing dollars people are going to do what with the dollars they're going to buy stuff you know even if they go and buy gold so what happens oh the price of gold goes up so what it doesn't generate inflation in the us because uh, nothing in the us is priced in in gold so it doesn't generate a an upward pressure on prices in the us so the us is immune so the consequence in the us although there are consequences they tend to be mild and not problematic. The, the most dangerous thing in U.S. policy when, when you say I'm going to go out and you know have big fiscal deficits and spend is in what you spend. So a good chunk of the problem is that the U.S. has had deficits, but those deficits have been for cutting taxes on the wealthy and spending on not particularly good wars abroad. You know, things like Iraq and Afghanistan and so on and so forth with probably terrible blowback consequences in terms of foreign policy for the U.S., they have not been the sorts of policies that produce full employment at home. I'm all for complaining about the sort of fiscal policy the U.S. has, but it's not the fact that they have deficits, which, by the way, in my view at this point, they're small. It used to be that the right size of the deficit is the deficit that produces full employment. And so the U.S. is very far from full employment. But the way they're using that money, it's not producing full employment at home, let alone you know providing the sort of global expansion that the U.S. can and should provide. The U.S. is the only economy that it could actually take the whole global economy out of the crisis and actually even take Europe out of the crisis if it provides a strong enough global recovery. But that's not in the cards.
1: If we were to look at, say, go 100 years in the future and we're trying to think about what could cause the US dollar to maybe lose its reserve currency status, if we look to your part of the world, South America, that part of the world no longer has US military bases. If we saw a similar breakdown of US control of some geopolitical areas, such as maybe Saudi Arabia or the Middle East, where it's very critical for oil production, could we see that this could have the seeds of causing the US dollar to lose its hegemonic role?
0: Sure enough, the, you know, the. US may at some point in the dollar so hegemonies are not forever so I, I wouldn't deny that. Uh, first of all, Latin America still does have lots of military bases. So think of Colombia uh, you know Colombia is a huge. US military base. end yeah and Colombia is strategic in many sort of uh, respects. it's close to Venezuela, it's close to the Amazon and they reactivated the fleet the South Atlantic fleet. So all of those things suggest that, in part, I suppose, because Brazil has, or at least it was floated in the Brazilian media, because Brazil has uh, significant amounts of oil in the South Atlantic. Uh, but certainly, you know, I, I doubt that it's the sort of thing that people traditionally think it's the, the overextension sort of notion that the U.S. is spending too much and so gets overextended and cannot keep control of all those things. Uh, also, because of the type of wars that U.S. has maintained, uh, even with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the direct amount of casualties are relatively minor They're using all of these drones now and the nuclear arsenal is the the other thing. I think it's relevant. What I think it's more important to think um, is that, yes, it has to do with the contracts that you put in a particular currency and the military, but at the end of the day, it's also associated, the rise of the dollar and the rise of the pound before and and so on and so forth, uh, associated, remember, to the control of international trade routes and the control of uh, key technologies. So... The U.S. does control and still is, you know, central for most key technology. Uh, although people don't necessarily notice that because of the decline in U.S. manufacturing, uh, particularly manufacturing jobs that most of the relevant technologies still come out of the U.S. It's very difficult to come up and pinpoint something that the Chinese have invented that we all use and want and whatnot. Think of things like GPS technology. The Chinese are doing their airplanes. They're going to do GPS. The GPS, it's all American technology. Global corporations are central for this and American corporations are in the middle of all of this. So to a great extent, the U.S., Wall Street and the U.S. government, the IMF, Treasury, Wall Street complex works for American corporations. But that's not necessarily true forever. So certainly, you know, technology and technological innovation is difficult to guarantee that it will always flow from U.S. corporations. There might be new technologies coming from different places. Uh, Technological dynamism in the U.S. may break down. And things like, you know, culture might be relevant for that. Say here you have a big backlash, basic education and science. You know, people are against evolution. They don't want stem cell research. That might have an impact, but I, I don't, you know, tell you the truth, I don't foresee even in the next hundred years, something like that. Of course, that, that could certainly happen, but uh, I think that the most obvious scenario is that energy sources may change, and what we think is being crucial at this point, Middle East, uh, this, that and the other, may not uh, be that relevant, yeah, whatever, in 50 years, and that may change drastically some of these assumptions. The, the last three transitions, they have been all European transitions, but the last three, the Dutch, uh, the British, and the American, they're, they're very closely interconnected. It's practically the same elites. So the Dutch actually invaded England. Yeah, the British I'm not too fond of, of thinking of William and Mary as an invasion, but it's a Dutch invasion and invited by the merchant elites in England, but no, no doubt an invasion. And... And that's part of the transition. The Bank of England is a copy of, you know, to some extent of the Bank of Amsterdam and, and the creation of the pound and the huge amounts of debt that actually England had in the 18th century are associated to that transition. Remember this. England rose to prominence globally and it reached a level of debt to GDP of 260%. So when people say, Oh, too much debt will reduce growth like Rogoff and Reinhardt, it's the opposite. What we know historically is that England actually reached Global hegemony by piling huge amounts of that, and then the other transition is uh, to the dollar. So I find it very hard to think that a peaceful transition to a currency you know, related to a different kind of global elite uh, will be free from you know from wars, and and so I I cannot foresee anything even possible at this point that would lead to. China, certainly not Europe. Europe in the European project, there is nothing like that. And you know, Germany does still have American troops, <laughs> which is uh, so, sort of interesting. US never left, so I, I don't think that that's something we'll see e- even in a few generations.
1: Well, Matthias, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Never know how much
0: I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever
1: On this episode, you, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra the morning, and The Gentleman of the Fidelity Fiduciary Bank from the film Mary Poppins. Some you also heard the maniacs trying to spend their money and you are now listening to Fever by Peggy Lee which is dedicated to the lovely Precious thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega
0: Fever in
1: the morning a fever all through the night
0: everybody got the fever that is something you all know fever isn't such a new thing fever started long